standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Chops. Obviously, I don't know what your plans are this weekend, but I'm off to look at a puppy. So I hope that yours contains something as joyful. Uh, Peggy having a little go on a scratching post there. Could you do that at a different time? Thank you. Or maybe if you listen to this podcast early enough, you can spend some of your Sunday at the British Library's fantastic exhibition, Elizabeth and Mary, Royal Cousins, Rival Queens, because that is exactly what this podcast is about. I'm chatting to curator Dr Andrea Clark about Queen Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots, where they were similar, where they were different and what myths about them need to go in the bin right now. She talks me through some of the treasures on display, many for the first time, and has a crack at answering the eternal question, did it really need to end with Mary's head on the chopping block? Or could it have all been so different? The exhibition is on at the British Library until February the 20th. I had a chat with Andrea off mic and she told me that they'd had loads of compliments from visitors about how the display was laid out and distance, which made them feel safe to be there. So if you are worried about being outside or indeed inside in public, I hope you take some encouragement from that. Until next time. So the Tudors, very much the gateway drug to history. It's the period of history that everybody thinks they know about because we learn about it in school, but also because books, films, TV programmes are obsessed by the Tudors. So I think a lot of people think they know the Tudors. So I wonder to start off with, if you could just throw a couple of myths in the bin now, what would they be? Well, for me, the big one, thinking specifically about Elizabeth and Mary, and, and this is very much based on what people have said to me when they've left the exhibition, I never realised that they didn't actually meet. So that's one of the big ones. You know, they've been brought together, these two women on stage and screen so many times that I guess a lot of people just, you know, they believe that they actually met in person. They really wanted to meet, but they never actually met. That would be one of the first that springs to mind. I think, again, connecting my answer to the exhibition, a lot of people just think they know Elizabeth and Mary's story because they know how it ended. But their story is so much more complex and nuanced and actually really interesting than probably a lot of people realised than I realised before I started working on the exhibition. You know, they didn't start out as mortal enemies, which is what I think probably a lot of people assume. They actually, you know, very early on in their, their relationship, particularly at the point when Mary returned from France to Scotland to take up direct rule. Um, So the early 1560s, they wrote to each other an awful lot. They spoke in terms of sisterly amity and they expressed a desire to meet, particularly Mary. She, She constantly petitioned Elizabeth to meet. She wanted to get to know her cousin, persuade her cousin to name her her successor. So it's a really interesting relationships I say it's much more nuanced and complex than people perhaps realize and we in the exhibition we follow the the twists and the turns of that relationship. What are you hoping that people are going to take away from this exhibition? I want them to leave feeling like they've learned something that they've really got to know the two women better. One of the things that we we do unsurprisingly being the British Library is that we put at the very heart of the exhibition the letters that Elizabeth and Mary wrote to each other, speeches that Elizabeth wrote, poetry that Mary composed, 
letters written by the courtiers who were closest to them, who, who report conversations that they had with the two women. So we very much tell their story in their own words using their voice. We really want their voices to shine through. And I think that's really important because you get a real sense of immediacy from, from their letters and documents. They bring the two women to life. It's one thing to, to read a text in print. It's quite another to see it in the handwriting of the person mm. who once lived. You get a lot of character revelation and a sense of intimacy with that person. I think it's really quite powerful, particularly in a, in a digital age, to see handwriting. I think it's one of the, the most powerful ways in which we can connect with historical figures. I want people to leave the exhibition feeling as if they have almost met the real Mary and the real Elizabeth. One of the best comments that I've read from somebody who visited the exhibition was that she left feeling as if she'd had a conversation with the two women. And I just thought that is brilliant because yeah. that is what we wanted to achieve. Yeah, that is great. So let's talk about them as individuals. Mm -hmm. Many male historians and writers are obsessed with Elizabeth I. I think in the same way that many of them are obsessed with Margaret Thatcher. I think there's something about the woman in power that is fascinating to them. So I wonder if you could tell me sort of over the years how much service or disservice has been done to Elizabeth's legacy by the male gaze. Yeah, it's true to say that historians have tended to, you know, probably from the 16th century into the 20th century have tended to depict Elizabeth and Mary, I think, in, in, in ways that have reflected the patriarchal gender stereotypes and norms of their times and societies. It's, it's not something that I've kind of given a huge amount of thought to, but what I will say is that in the exhibition, we have made a concerted effort to step away from that. We have stripped away the layers of interpretation. We really wanted Elizabeth and Mary to tell their own story and for people to get close to them through their own words and their yeah. voices. You know, not only are we displaying their letters, their documents, their speeches, but we also have audio recordings from key letters and speeches. So we have Juliet Stevenson reading out extracts from Elizabeth's letters and a wonderful actress from the RSC, Amy Brown, who is reading out extracts from Mary's letters and speeches to, to really try to create that sense of immediacy that I was talking about earlier. There's a tendency to see them as, because they ended up in this situation, like you say, because of how it ended, to see them as sort of polar opposites to each other, to see mm. Elizabeth as the strong, the powerful one, the one who was in control of her own destiny, and to see Mary mm. as the victim, the one that was buffeted by fate, and, and she did have a really, really, I would say, tragic personal life. I mean, mm. it, you only have to look at Mary and see why Elizabeth didn't get married in many ways because the terrible marriage obviously ended terribly. I mean, she was a victim of sexual abuse. Her marriage to Bothwell, I mean, that was just a horror. She lost contact with her child or she lost custody of her child. I mean, really, really tragic. Am I falling into a trap here to see her as a victim, do you think? As a victim, yeah, that's a good question. I think her story is, it's certainly sad and it's very dramatic. But I think what's really interesting for me working on the exhibition is that, you know, there was a complete reversal of circumstances and fortunes for these two women. So what perhaps people don't realise is that 
you know, Mary grew up in France in the luxury of French court. She had a very secure, loving upbringing, whereas Elizabeth had a terrible start in life, Mm -hmm. you know. Her mother was executed when she was three years old. She was bastardised. You know, she was kind of alternately cosseted and ignored by her father, you know, the capricious Henry VIII. She was removed from the royal succession twice. She was accused of complicity in the the Wyatt Rebellion in the reign of her half-sister Mary I. She was imprisoned. She was on the verge of being executed. We display the famous Tide letter in the exhibition, which she wrote to her sister begging for an audience. And, you know, in that letter, she's really fighting for her life. So she had a really precarious childhood, um, I would say an emotionally deprived childhood. And then their fortunes, two women's fortunes are completely reversed. I don't know. I mean, was Mary a victim? I think she's she's such an interesting character. I think she's much, she was much stronger and um, a, a better leader than a lot of people perhaps give her credit for. When she took up direct rule, when she returned to Scotland, she actually started out really, really well. You know, she made a, a success of her first years in power. It was only when she she married her second marriage to to Darnley on paper it looked it looked good but it quickly unraveled you know he revealed his his true self after after their marriage and Scotland was a difficult country to rule and her choice of Darnley really split the nobility and things unraveled very very quickly we include in the exhibition a fascinating letter which was written by one of Mary's earliest keepers when she fled over the border into England, seeking refuge from Elizabeth. It's written by Sir Francis Knowles, probably to William Cecil. And and he talks about Mary in really interesting terms, in a way that I'd never really considered her before. And he talks about her being very pleasant and chatty and everything. But he says, most of all, she wants revenge. Mm. You know, she's a strong woman. Even John Knox, the fiery Protestant preacher who couldn't stand Mary, he he couldn't help but admire her, her gallantry and her bravery, the way she led her forces into action. Yeah, she's she's really, as is Elizabeth, a really interesting, complex character. I think she made some poor decisions later on, but I think she made them out of desperation. You know, she'd been incarcerated Mm. for 15 years plus. She saw no way out. She had no hope particularly after her son, James VI, refused to allow her to return to Scotland and take up joint rule with him. She had no hope and she looked elsewhere for hope. And people were happy to take advantage of that, weren't they, for their mm. own for their mm. own ends. And again, men taking advantage of her and using her as sort of a figurehead. Of the two of them, I find her more easy, I think, to like. I don't know why particularly. I think it's because she doesn't always know what's best for her, so that's quite endearing. And she dies so flamboyantly that I think you have to have respect. Although I would say I find it, Elizabeth, easy to admire, but a lot less easy to like, I think. Yes, I think of the two, I think probably Mary was much warmer, more gregarious and outgoing. You know, I refer back to that letter that I've just mentioned Mm. by Knowles. You know, he said she, she spoke a lot. You know, she's very very personable, very likeable. And there's another letter in the exhibition which talks about her 
during her captivity, when she was in Derbyshire, she met up with a group of townswomen and, you know, she clearly had the common touch. Her keeper at the time got into trouble for allowing her to have access to these women. But, you know, she talked to them and she said, I'm a widow like you are. She said, we've got a lot in common. You know, I think if I was going to have a cup of tea with one of them, I'd probably want to have a cup of tea with Mary because I think you'd, you'd have a really nice conversation and a, a lot of fun with her. I think Elizabeth was much more probably a product of her childhood you know much more wary steely Mm. reserved distant I think that makes her more fascinating than Mary because she's harder to get to the kind of crux of and to get beyond that veneer or that facade yeah yeah so I think I think Mary is probably more likable but Elizabeth is more intriguing and fascinating yeah well I mean as someone who has never married I find her interesting from that respect because it's it's still quite hard to do in the 21st century to mm. say this house shall have no master and just one mistress. It's still quite hard to say that in the 21st century, let alone, you know, all of those hundreds of years ago. Yeah, we have three speeches in the exhibition that Elizabeth made to Parliament on the subject of marriage and succession. You know, Elizabeth came under huge pressure to marry right from the word go. As soon as she became queen, the survivor of the Tudor dynasty and the succession depend, and you know, and, and probably the security of the, of the Protestant state depended on her, her marrying. And Cecil really couldn't understand her reluctance to, you know, to commit to marrying. You know, he was sort of pulling his hair out, really. In these three speeches, Elizabeth is very determined that this is a matter for her own consideration only. This is a, a, a private matter. Again, really interesting. I think I think probably, you know, again, a mix of childhood experiences, you know, the fact that her mother was executed. She saw her father dismiss wives. She also saw what her, you know, what happened to her sister, her half-sister, mm. Mary I. When she married, she married Philip II of Spain, and that was a really unpopular choice. I think it was um, the very beginning of Elizabeth's reign, and the courtier Sir William Paget said to the Spanish ambassador that there is no one for her to marry either outside the kingdom or within it. And he, he, he put his finger on the, on, the, on the money, really, because he realised that if Elizabeth married a, a foreign prince, she risked it being a really unpopular choice and, and causing political unrest. But also to, to, to marry, you know, an English nobleman could end up creating, you know, great mm. unhappiness and, and political instability as well and faction yeah. at court. So, you know, she was damned if she didn't, damned if she didn't, really. ask you knowing everything that you know about Mm. the pair of them was the ending inevitable or could it all have been so different yeah I don't think the ending was inevitable it's a story of what ifs and if onlys I think there are probably two or three points in the story where things could have gone in a different direction I think that if Mary had stayed in Scotland when she escaped imprisonment and fled over the border to England. I think if she had made the decision to stay in Scotland, because she still had a lot of support in Scotland, so she lost the battle, but she hadn't completely lost support. Yeah, if she'd stayed put, she probably would have been able to regain her crown. So I think that was probably the first. That was probably the worst decision she made, in fact, fleeing into England and believing that Elizabeth would be able to help her. The two women came very close to meeting in 1562. 
all of the arrangements have been put in place. They had both expressed a genuine desire to meet, an earnest desire to meet and to reach a sort of, you know, an amity. And I think Mary really believed if she could meet Elizabeth, she would be able to persuade Elizabeth to name her as her successor, which is what she really wanted. But at the very last minute, the the meeting was cancelled. Basically, it was thwarted by Cecil. William Cecil, who was who was kind of Elizabeth's prime minister. He was her principal secretary because he always believed that Mary was danger. We have we have documents in the exhibition and he prefaces every single option with the word danger when he's writing about Mary. And he was determined that the two women wouldn't meet. And so just before they were due to meet, Mary's uncle, who was one of her Guise family, a military leader in France, he was involved in the massacre of French Protestants, French Huguenots, and Cecil used that as a reason to call off the meeting. He said that there was no way that Elizabeth could meet Mary now because it would be too problematic, given Mm. what had happened in France. And the meeting, as we know, never took place. Who knows what would have come out of that meeting? And again in 1584, which is only really, you know, just over two years before Mary was executed, again we show the letter in the exhibition that Elizabeth um, sent. It was only rediscovered in 2010. And in in the letter, Elizabeth sent it to Mary's jailer at the time, Sir Ralph Sadler. And she's responding to a letter that has come from Mary, suggesting that she has come up with a proposal for reconciliation. And so even at this very late stage, Elizabeth writes to her, her cousin, and she says that she's open to reconciliation. And so I think there were moments that where, where the story could have taken a different turn. Elizabeth suggested that Mary sent her secretary down to London to present her proposal to her. And he did indeed visit, but nothing, nothing came of the olive branch. But there were definitely moments where things could have gone uh, in a different direction. An obvious question seems to be, you know, would this have been different if they'd both been men? But I, I don't even think the scenarios would have arisen if they'd both been men. Elizabeth would have been able to marry a lot easier and... Yeah. And Mary would have been way more in control of the situation, obviously, if she was a man. But were the fact that they were women, do you think it exacerbated it? Because there were, there were kind of, you see these sort of trivial things that they were sort of, who was the more attractive? That You, you can't ever imagine that you would say things like that if you were talking about men. Or, mm. or maybe you would say he seems more powerful, he seems more handsome. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this was a really unique situation. For the first time, you have two women ruling in their own right over... Two independent kingdoms, Scotland and England, obviously, um, within the British Isles, when the traditional form of government has always been kingship. And so I think what visitors would see in the exhibition is them both working out how to, to, to rule and and survive in a patriarchal society, in a man's world. And, and really, I suppose we focus on their, their decisions to, to marry and, and not to marry. You know, for Elizabeth, that path that she took worked out better than it did for, for Mary. I think also it is fair to say that external circumstances also influenced the way things turned out. These two women who were very, very similar in many ways, they were sort of polarised by religious and political circumstances. One of the things we do in the exhibition, you know, 
these two women are at the very core of it, but we, we show how their story reflected a much broader story. So we set it within the religious reformations mm. and we show how, you know, their, their battle first for dynastic supremacy within the British Isles and then for survival, ultimately, it became impossible to disentangle it from national religious struggles. And yeah, I think it's, it's fair to say that, you know, William Cecil is the third big figure in the exhibition he was always there in the background he was there right from the very beginning of well before Elizabeth became queen he was one of the reasons why you know he supported her got her to the throne and he I think very often he probably felt that he knew what was best for her and so he was always there in the background kind of fixing things and yeah it would have been very different if they were male obviously yeah Last question for you. I'm going to come down and see the exhibition um, before Brilliant. it closes. So tell me, what's the thing I should be very excited about looking at? What definitely won't I have seen before? As a manuscripts person, I would tell you you should be really excited about, you know, all the letters written in yeah. the two women's own hands. So we have um, one of my personal favourites is a speech written in Elizabeth's hand. For me, it just fizzes with her personality. She walks off the page. She's responding to Parliament's petition that she marry. And she tells them, you know, and this is in her hand, her really scrappy hand. You can, you know, Her anger just kind of hits you in the face, really, when you look yeah. at this piece of paper. She tells her ministers that she is fed up with lip-laboured orations coming out of jangling subjects' mouths. I just think it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> what you won't definitely have seen before is the sonnet that Mary, Queen of Scots, wrote the night before she was executed. It was her way of her expressing her feelings the night before she died. It's resigned, it's sorrowful, but you get a sense of strength from it as well. She's at this point determined to die a good Catholic death. But we also have fantastic loans, remarkable survivals, beautiful objects. We have jewellery. We have Elizabeth I locket ring, which opens to reveal hidden miniature portraits of her and her mother, Anne Boleyn. Oh, that's interesting. Anne Boleyn doesn't really pop up much, does she, in Elizabeth's life? After she dies. No, yeah, and Elizabeth never spoke about her mother, but it, it seems to have been a way in which she sort of guarded and remembered her mm. mother, you know, sort of um, probably honoured her mother would be the correct word. Yeah, so it's, it's a really stunning, stunning object on loan from Chequers Trust. We have um, the Pennicook Jewels from National Museum of Scotland, which Mary gave to one of her ladies-in-waiting shortly before her execution. We have fantastic maps, beautiful portraits, stunning portrait miniature of Mary, Queen of Scots, on loan from Her, her Majesty the Queen. It's just absolutely exquisite. It's one of the best likenesses of her. And we have a wonderful portrait of Elizabeth I, which, again, you will not have seen. It's on display, public display in the UK for the first time since 1932. It's one of oh, the... Wow an opportunity not to, to miss, really, to see it. It's stunning. It's almost photographic in its quality. It's of Elizabeth at about 34 years old, and it's one of the earliest and best likenesses of her as, as queen. And it's just, it's just beautiful. And again, you get a real kind of strength of character and self-assuredness that just sort of seems to shine through. Right, I'm going to stop this interview and come down on a train. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This has been really interesting, Andrea. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Standard Issue for All Women.